District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We're catching up with Perk at the State Policy Network Conference, where I've been at this past week, and I'm speaking with Brian Yablonski and Hannah Downey, previously a guest on the show, but we figured we'd bring the leader of the organization on to talk about what they've been up to. You guys just hosted a panel this morning about conservation, some of the latest issues, and kind of your periphery into what the Biden administration is doing on these issues, and a glimpse into their work. So thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Well, Thank you, you for having us. Yeah. As you must know, I work for Hannah, though. We talk about the leader, so. <laughs> I, I think if we're going to specific here, I should clarify. Brian is the CEO of PERC. Yes. I am the policy director. Who works for Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for uh, having us. In case you haven't noticed, the West is on fire. Like, I was just yeah. there. I saw it myself. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Um, yeah, this wildfire issue is, um, it's probably for us the alpha and omega right now that we're working on in PERC. Uh, we just released a report called Fixing America's Force uh, that talk about what, what's needed to be done to address wildfire. Um, you know, right now I was checking out a gentleman who was supposed to join us on the panel this morning was a guy named Jim Carls, and he's the national fire director for the State Foresters Association. Hmm. And unfortunately, he couldn't join us because he's in California working on the two big wildfires that are, wow. that are taking place there, one of them near Lake Tahoe, where they just did a bunch of evacuations last night. But he and I were talking yesterday, and he was telling me that uh, right now we've got something like 87 active wildfires going on across mm-hmm. the nation, and currently 2.8 million acres are burning. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of acreage that's burning right now. Um, I saw that report from the National Fire Impact I think I'm butchering the name, but I did see yeah. that those numbers. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's crazy. You know, if you think about the the Forest Service, our focus has been on public land and primarily Forest Service land. Um, if you think about it, the Forest Service owns uh, 163 million acres, and there is about 60 million acres that is in high or very high risk of wildfire right now, and probably about 80 million acres needed to be restored. Mm-hmm. And if you think about 80 million, 163, that's half of the inventory of the U.S. Forest Service mm-hmm. needs to be restored right now, mm-hmm. but it's a problem of their own making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is uh, this is 110 years of fire suppression, which is not natural. That uh, has been the mission of the Forest Service, uh, just to put out fires and not to address the root cause, which is mm-hmm. um, a lot of the kindling that uh, is making our forest a powder keg right now. And you guys were explaining this morning that it's not a budget problem. Mm-hmm. Everything is there. Money is appropriated. It's just a maybe an infrastructure or a lack of action, you would say? Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. And I think what is really encouraging is that more and more people are starting to increase their calls for action. It was more and more people are realizing and feeling the human impacts of these fires. It's crazy. We in Bozeman haven't been able to see mountains because of all the smoke. We've had to cancel activities and outdoor activities because uh, the air quality is so bad and the air pollution is so bad. And I know you guys in DC and the East Coast Mm -hmm. and all over the United States, honestly, are now feeling the impacts of these fires. And I had had the, the opportunity last week to go tour a, a former home site of a woman who last year lost her home in a fire outside of Bo- right outside of Bozeman 
And it was just devastating to see this woman who had lived there for over 20 years. She's a local community vet. She had horses, her dogs, her home, everything there. And in the course of like a moment, she had to get up, grab her animals, leave her home. And within a day, all that was left of her home were a few cinder blocks. Like it it was, she tells a story of how she had sterling silver in the home and the fire came through so quickly and so hot that like the silver literally disintegrated. It's just devastating. So people are realizing the need for impact or for action. Mm -hmm. I think that was at the end of my point, just the need for more and more people are realizing the need for action. They're feeling the impact. And there's something actually in the West now we call it fire season. There's actually Mm -hmm. like a designated season and it's 70 days longer than it was in in the 1970s. Like it's just getting, it's getting longer and longer. The fires are getting uh, more and more devastating. Um, but there's a fix to it. I mean, we talk, you know, in the policy world, we, you know, everybody wants to point fingers and say, what, what is this? You know, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And you'll hear climate change. Mm-hmm. And climate change is definitely a factor involved in this. Um, but, you know, the, the amount of fire suppression and live fuel that we have in the forest is actually the driving factor. I mean, forest uh, service scientists have actually looked at this and said that it's live fuel in our forests or these small diameter trees that have been allowed to grow is a 53% cause versus climate change, which is like a 14% mm-hmm. cause. But it's not either or. Like, there's going to be a climate change fix. Like, folks are going to advance a climate change fix. But that's going to be off in the horizon. Like, that's not going to fix the problem we have today with wildfire. Mm-hmm. It might be preventative going on in the future, but when you've got 80 million acres in need of restoration, that's a here and now that we can get on right away. And I think to Hannah's point, there is a bipartisan growing bipartisan support, I would say, that maybe didn't exist uh, four or five years ago for addressing this problem. Um, So there are resources, you know, in the infrastructure bill and budget reconciliation. I know there's a lot of money that they're trying to move towards addressing this, but to Hannah's point, like, you can keep throwing money at it, but if the institutions are broke or if there are barriers created by other federal policies, such as NEPA or um, the Clean Air Act mm-hmm. and other other things that run counter to it, as well as um, litigation. Um, we have a we have a project uh, outside of Bozeman that uh, was was initially proposed by uh, the Custer Gallatin National Forest to protect a watershed, headwaters of a watershed that is the water supply for Bozeman, Montana. And that project was proposed, I think, in two thousand four when they started moving it forward. It has gone through repeat challenge after challenge after challenge from environmental groups who are always finding a loophole to be able to get in, whether it's the Endangered Species Act or you didn't consider the Canadian lynx or you didn't consider this, and uh, and it gets thrown back out of the system and brought back. Uh, finally, uh, this past spring, they actually broke ground on the project. That's 2021. That's 16 years, 16 years to do a basic forest, re- just to break ground on a basic wow. forest restoration project. So there's something wrong here when... Uh, we know how to solve this thing, but um, and we have the resources to solve this thing, but we can't get these projects off the ground. Yeah, and I don't think just proposing two working groups to address fire is anything substantive. I saw that and I was like, okay, is this going to lead to action or are they just going to kick the can down the road on the issue? It's nice. Maybe you want to assuage your backer, backers about this, but I think a lot of people do want to see, let's say, reforming the portion of the Clean Air Act that determines and says that prescribed burns are pollutants, but natural wildfires, smoke doesn't count for anything. So it's not kind of, so explain that also policy, like what, what, what should we see? What are the top two, three remedies policy-wise that people should see on this front? 
Yeah. Well, that one, that one's kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> and I think, you've, I think you even have Senator Wyden from Oregon, yeah. like, helping sponsor legislation uh, to address that. But to, to kind of describe for your listeners what we're talking about, uh, prescribed burn is a way to manage the forest. And it actually mimics what nature used to do before we went into this uh, suppression policy, where you'd have lightning strikes and then you'd have these low-intensity burns that would happen in the national forest, which would actually clear out the brush and shrubs uh, at the low level and cause fires to burn lower, closer to the ground as opposed to these big canopy fires uh, that we see today. Uh, the, um, and where I'm initially from, I'm initially from Florida, North Florida, and we do a lot of prescribed burning in North Florida, of the longleaf pine uh, habitat uh, over there. Um, it's actually kind of the birthplace of fire ecology. A lot of the original fire studies in the 1920s and 30s took place in that uh, South Georgia, North Florida region to say, like, no, fire is actually good. And Smoky Bear is not, you know, all right when it comes to you know, putting, putting everything out. Um, but, uh, and we're very used to this in the South. We're used to control burns. When you see smoke in the air, you don't think, oh, my God, wildfire, this is crazy. Most people in the South go, oh, yeah, somebody's doing a control burn there. They're taking care of their forest. They're making the forest more healthy. That culture doesn't exist in the West. Uh, it just hasn't migrated there. And that's part of PERC. Um, we're partnering with Tall Timbers, which is based in the Southeast, to try to get, bring more awareness, but to also try to unwind some of the regulatory burdens mm-hmm. that keep Western states from moving forward. Some of that is state. There's state regulations. There's state permitting processes. Uh, for example, in California, if you want to do a controlled burn, uh, you're going to go through nine different agencies, have to get nine different Jeez. permits just to get that done. And it's going to take you nine months to get it done. Uh, when I talked to Jim Carls, who I mentioned uh, earlier, he uh, used to be the state forester in Florida. He said he could approve a control burn in four minutes. Big difference. So, so some of this is going to be state policy that we've got to look at. But from a federal policy standpoint, which we were referencing, is the Clean Air Act, which sets state emissions cap, mm-hmm. uh, caps on particulates that states can emit. And right now, wildfire doesn't count against a state emissions cap. It's considered natural, but a prescribed burn that could uh, minimize wildfire does count against your state emissions cap. And I think EPA will prove that on a case-by-case basis, but there's nothing certain. It's hard to plan. So um, what's needed is a blanket policy to say, if you're doing prescribed burn, that just doesn't count against your Clean Air Act uh, cap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another big issue that we've seen, especially in Montana, is how litigation can hold up those forest mm-hmm. projects. Brian was discussing the Bozeman Municipal Watershed Project um, and how it took 16 years for us to break ground on that because some very intense groups continued to sue and litigate on the procedural grounds. And so um, popular environmental laws uh, that people will either love or love to hate, such as the uh, as NEPA or the Endangered Species Act, those can really provide grounds for litigation. And so we've been looking at ways to say, okay, these, these rules are very well-intentioned, but what are ways that we can ensure they are, we, we take these environmental considerations into account, but ultimately are able to move forward with projects. And so we've been looking at ways such as categorical exclusions um, or even statute of limitations reduction, some of those things to help allow those legal processes to move forward more quickly rather than getting tied up in courts for literally decades. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that about captures it, just the need to look at policy reforms that will limit the impact of litigation so that we so often see these collaborative processes where so many stakeholder groups come together, develop these kind of forest plans, wildfire risk reduction plans, 
And it, it works wonderfully, but yeah, when things get tied up in litigation, it can throw off all of that collaboration. Mm-hmm. So focusing on reforms to litigation that uphold that collaboration over the conflict, that's going to be really important as we move forward and ensure that our resources are used effectively on the ground. And you were alluding to, Brian, earlier this morning about kind of a private option. Yeah. That organization that's using injecting yep. capital. Yeah. Talk about that organization yeah. and their efforts. Yeah, Blue Force, very uh, innovative. So one of the problems you do here is resources. You know, hey, we don't have the money. We don't have the ability to get in there and fix some of these forests quickly. Uh, Blue Force, this organization that raises capital and, and does forest restoration projects, um, recognize that there's a connection between wildfire and water supply for communities and watersheds. And oftentimes the forests that are in most need of restoration are those that are at the headwaters of some place like in Bozeman. We have a reservoir up in the mountains in the National Forest that if we were to lose that reservoir due to wildfire, so trees coming down, sediment uh, build up, uh, the reservoir stops functioning, which is, which is a very real effort, we'd lose uh, 80% of our water supply in Bozeman. So out in California, uh, Blue Forest has partnered with the Tahoe National Forest, and they've partnered with um, the Yuba uh, Water Agency, which is the water authority for some of the cities that are, that are uh, serving the Sierras, uh, to actually accelerate forest management in their forest restoration management in their watershed. And what they do is they raise the capital up front, private capital. They've gone to investors. They've gone to insurance companies to raise the capital to do a 15,000-acre forest restoration project. And because this is being privately driven with private capital, they can move through a lot of the processes that we're talking about a lot quicker. They can get this project done in four years Mm -hmm. instead of 12 years, which would likely be the average if the Forest Service were just doing this on its own. So what's in it for Blue Forest? Well, Blue Forest will get a rate of return, and that rate of return will be built into the water rates that the Yuba Water Agency are charging residents and businesses uh, and commercial operations uh, back in the cities there. So um, so it's kind of a win-win. It's, it's unique financing option out there. The Forest Service is uh, pleasantly uh, very encouraged by that, and so they'd like to try more of that to their credit. Uh, and Perk has been, you know, one of the ones on the forefront saying, hey, yeah, let's mm-hmm. let's multiply some of these good private uh, ways that private partners can yeah. be more yeah. engaged. And I, th- I think the coolest thing on the Forest Resilience Bond is that more and more people are realizing, again, the, imp- the negative impacts and costs they will face if a fire comes through. So Brian's point, right, the watershed is destroyed. So the water agency is going to have to deal with water shortages, polluted water, all those things. They will face costs down the road. People not uh, knowing what a healthy forest really looks right. like. And a healthy forest is open and more park-like. Mm-hmm. Um, you see this in some of the Ponderosa pine forests that, that we have in the West. In the South, it's very much like that if you go to a long mm-hmm. pine forest. Mm-hmm. So where you have grasslands kind of underneath large old-growth trees or spaced apart. Um, so it is kind of a revelation to folks when we're driving through and we point to this really dense you know, stand of woods yeah. and go, this is really actually unhealthy, not a healthy mm-hmm. forest. Let's talk about gray wolf delisting. There was an interesting decision handed down with that. I think, I forget which court affirmed it, but also I think the Biden administration said they're not going to challenge the ruling. So talk about that and how it plays into ESA reforms and following the science when it comes to species management or species conservation. Yeah, so, uh, you know, this is one of those where uh, sometimes good science just prevails and it doesn't matter which administration you're in. 
Um, but the Gray Wolf has been an incredible success story. And, uh, and you know, in places where the Gray Wolf has been delisted for a number of years, like Montana and Idaho, mm -hmm. uh, Gray Wolf populations have continued, you know, Yellowstone Wolf populations have continued to thrive and do well under state management. And that's the whole point. And the whole point of, uh, of delisting in the Endangered Species Act is to return management to the states. And the states manage 95% of the wildlife we have in the United States of America. And you think about your uh, game commissions and your game mm -hmm. agencies uh, across the country, and, and they do a great job. And as was noted by Margaret Everson in our uh, panel this morning, you know, no species that has been hunted has ever gone extinct. <laughs> you know, and that's, uh, that's because hunters and anglers care. They invest mm -hmm. in the species. They, they don't want to go and hunt and not see a species, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of counterproductive. So they'll put money, they'll put license revenue, they'll put excise tax fees uh, towards those efforts. And I think that's been the, the case with wolves. Unfortunately, wolves are sort of a highly politicized uh, mm -hmm. species. And it goes back to the wolf wars when wolf reintroductions were happening in the 1990s. But over the years, we kind of found a way to take the temperature down on that. And some of them have been free market ideas like having wolf compensation funds. You know, what, uh, what Hank Fisher, who was at Defenders of Wildlife, recognized in the 1990s was that wolf restoration was often being done on the backs of ranchers that were raising cattle and sheep, and there was depredation going on by the wolves, and, and he rightly thought that was pretty unfair. So he created a fund to actually help uh, generate revenue that could pay these ranchers for loss of cattle and sheep. Um, it was not a panacea. It didn't fix everything. But it seemed to buy in, you know, there was a little bit more willingness to say, okay, as long as I'm getting compensated in some form or fashion, you know, um, we could take that problem off the table, which was a significant problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, the gray wolf is just such a touchy subject, but I just think it's so important for people to realize, as Brian stated, in states where the gray wolf has been delisted, such as Montana, our populations have continued to be healthy and our biologists are really encouraged by that. One thing just to note, and maybe a word of caution to some of the states, once they have management of these species as they do now, I mean, Montana and Idaho and some of the western states, their legislatures, um, I think kind of took on some of the roles of biologists and tried to really expand wolf hunting and, mm -hmm. and take control of that. And I, I completely agree that hunting is an important part of ecosystem management, it is an important funding source for wildlife management. But I would caution this, that some of the state legislatures to, to be conscious of that and to be conscious of the balance and listening to, and continuing to listen to the biologists because some of those state efforts, um, the, the very strong efforts on hunting and, and ex vastly expanded hunting quotas has led to some of this pushback from very environmental groups calling for relisting the wolf. And so as with all things, balance is the difficult, difficult part here. And so encourage states to continue to continue their sound management because that's where we've seen the most success. Do we see ESA modernization coming up? It seems really difficult now with kind of the deadlock in Congress. I don't see it happening under President Biden, he's not going to sign some ESA modernization bill, I don't believe so, unless he has some epiphany. But do you think maybe in four to five years, if things change, like could it be realized? I know Republicans have an interest and maybe some Democrats out West do, but what's the kind of the future of ESA modernization? Can it be realized or does it have to be more so practiced in the states or courts have to hand down those rulings? That, that is an excellent question. Um, I, I tend to think of myself as a conservation optimist and a policy optimist, so I hope so. Um, I do think one of the things that needs to change is that as we're having these conversations right now, preparing for 
potential years in the future, involving more of the very reasonable environmental conservation groups who I think more and more are starting to realize in their practices that markets and incentives are needed for wildlife conservation. And so I'm not here to say, wow, suddenly all environmental groups are going to get on board with this. But I do think it is very important to engage them right now, and especially from Perk's perspective, where our goal is how, how we want more conservation. We want that to be the goal. And so often it becomes industry versus traditional environmental group. And so I think there needs to be, and those two prefer to keep, keep separate. So I think there needs to be a more conscious effort to bring some, more of like the landowner groups and reasonable conservation groups together to say what are, what are reasonable ways that we can work together and then hopefully promote those ideas together rather than just staying entrenched in our own camps, not talking to the other people and fighting politically whenever things come out. So again, maybe I'm the optimist. I believe in collaboration. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll be proven totally wrong, but I think there's a unique opportunity there. Looking at the past, we've always just stayed huddled in our own camps, and that has led to the Trump administration making some changes, the Biden administration immediately announcing that they're going to undo those reforms. We just see this back and forth every time the administration changes, and so something really needs something really mm-hmm. needs to change. So it's not just a yo-yo. Yeah, and, and you know, the Endangered Species Act is this incredibly popular act. Like yeah. it, it, most Americans support the Endangered mm-hmm. Species Act, knowing nothing about it, mm-hmm. you know, what goes into it, mm-hmm. but they but they support it. And I will say there are people who want to see the act gone. Like out west, there sure. are hardcore folks like, just do away with the Endangered Species Act. But I think there's an information sort of uh, canyon here that needs to be crossed. And one is that the Endangered Species Act has done a very good job of keeping extinctions mm-hmm. from happening. And that was part of the purpose of the act. But the other purpose of the act was to actually recover these species. It wasn't just to keep them from falling off the cliff of extinction. It was to bring them back, bring them back to health, and get them off the list at the end of the day. That's the goal. That's mm-hmm. what we should be, be for. And we can claim success on extinctions and doing all we can to prevent extinctions, but, but, but the failure has been recovery. Only 3% Absolutely. of the species that are on the list have ever come off the list and been been recovered at the end of the day. I don't think Americans know that. They have no idea. And so I think it's all about message. It's how you approach, like, what's the tone? If you're saying, hey, we're going to do away with the Endangered Species Act because it's broke because we haven't had recoveries, you're going to run into a cul-de-sac there Mm -hmm. and not get any traction. What we like to say is we want to improve recovery. Like, we want to prop up that 3% number. And how do you get to propping up that 3% number? Clearly, it's not what we've been doing for the last 50 years. Right. Because that hasn't worked. So we got to try something here. So I think Americans, if you sit down kind of one-on-one like we are now, and you explain that, they go, oh, yeah, okay, we can try stuff. And mm-hmm. how do we engage states? And how do we engage private landowners in restoration? So everybody wants them off the list. Even when a state gets a species back, mm-hmm. it, when it, in the rare instance where it's been recovered, like a bald eagle, mm-hmm. which has come off the list, uh, they don't want to see it to go back on the list. They're not going right. to manage the species in a way that's going to cause relisting. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hannah's right. There are political optics here. Like, you know, some of the states that have passed legislation to kind of liberalize wolf take, um, maybe somebody at a scientific level has said, like, that's sustainable. I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah. But there are optics involved here, too, where you can have that political push to put these species back on a list uh, if, you go, if you go too far. So, um, so I think, you know, at the end of the day, let you know my my recommendation to either side is let the let the wildlife managers for the states manage the species. Mm-hmm. Let's not let this be 
a politicized federal issue nor a politicized state issue either because state mm -hmm. legislatures can politicize this just as much as the federal government can. But we do have wildlife managers in these state agencies who are incredibly capable who can manage these species in an appropriate way and let you know what the guardrails are in terms of uh, management mm -hmm. objectives. Mm -hmm. I guess something to tie in what we've been talking about is how private conservation efforts are this next frontier. You've talked about this when you offered your thoughts on the 3030 report. A response to that, I think we've seen a gravitation towards it because people just see top-down approaches causing more problems, incurring more tensions and issues with people, with different critical stakeholders. And I think more people are starting to come around to this, even groups that are more preservationist in their mindset. And so why do you believe that's the case and how can that be realized? You included a really neat graphic during today's presentation about how actually most biodiversity is concentrated in the southeast, and Hannah was telling me about that. And I was like, that's fascinating, no one knows this. And that's not to say public land efforts should be in vain, by no means, but no one knows that. So, so talk about how that all factors in. Yeah, no, uh, the map that you're describing does show, you know, biodiversity is kind of the goal that uh, the Biden administration is trying to achieve here in its large 30 by 30 initiative. And if you look at a map of the United States, the biodiversity hotspots are in the southeast. 80% um, of the biodiverse hotspots in the United States are on private land. Private land, endangered species, two-thirds two -thirds of the endangered species on the list rely on private land for the majority of its habitat. 75% of the wetlands uh, in America are on private land. So private land's hugely significant, but it presents a little bit of problem for the federal government because the federal government doesn't own the private land. And so it wants to keep conservation going or maybe incentivize conservation or regulate for conservation, but it's dealing with a private landowner. The, the kind of the pool is to go out west, right? That's, that's where most administrations go, oh, we're going to protect this. We're going to designate a wilderness area or a monument or something, which is already in federal lands. It's just changing the uses on the federal land. And then they call that conservation. But that's not the biodiverse areas of the mm -hmm. state. So you're kind of, um, you're going for somewhat low-hanging fruit, creating a lot of controversy, but not getting the conservation objective that you're necessarily necessarily aiming for. Um, you know, I see it, what, what is, what's frustrating to me is, is being out west and seeing these ranches and farms and being in the southeast where, where I spent 30 years and seeing the farms and privately managed forests out there. And there's just a lot of privately owned land that is managed really well for conservation. Now they may be doing timber, they may be doing cattle uh, ranching and, and other activities, but this is really well managed land. I mean, people who own the land tend to want to steward the land, right? Mm -hmm. Ownership has this weird, you don't want your land to look like a trash heap, you know? Mm -hmm. you, you exactly. Know. Well, or yeah. if, you're, if your product is growing yeah. cattle, yeah. you are going to care about your soil health right. and the grass and all those things. You understand the relationship right. between a healthy landscape and yeah. your bottom line. Yeah. But here's, here's what's frustrating on that note. So we define conservation in certain uh, preordained ways that have been established over the last 100 years. If it's not federal government managing the land or government managing the land, it's not conservation. Mm -hmm. If it's not in an easement, which is a legally binding agreement that sort of locks up the uses of your land in perpetuity, it's not conservation. But again, driving around and seeing some of these managers, like there is real conservation happening today on private land that is better than what the federal or even Absolutely. state government can do, and it doesn't count. We don't count it so it's a towards that anything. Is, we just ignore it yes. because it's not public and it's not constrained by legal easements, and we can't say, oh, it's always, always, always going to look like that. So for some reason, it's invisible. 
Yeah. It's such a shame, really. I've seen in my travels this year that kind of myth debunked in Florida, all over Okeechobee, beautifully manicured ranches, great livestock operations. Everything is clean. They have conservation easements. They have wildlife species, lots of different things, confluences there. And then even in Texas, I went to a ranch down there, actually a gentleman who's a fan of Perk too, oddly enough. I spoke to um, him as well. And beautifully appointed ranch, very well managed. He has a cattle operation nearby their mineral rights, not on his property, but adjacent to it. And yeah, you just go to these states where private land is somewhat more of the norm and you can see that, that conservation mm-hmm. in action. And that's sad that they don't value it as much as private or public land conservation either. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think one of the key points here when we say private lands are the next frontier of conservation, absolutely. However, it's also worth noting that this is not this is not an opening this should not be an opening and cannot be an opening for the federal government to come in and try and infringe on property rights in the name of these initiatives landowners truly have to be voluntary willing partners and not targets in this and that is um, I think we've been talking about Endangered Species Act and NEPA and all of these other things. We cannot let regulation come in, maybe well-intentioned, but impact private lands, and then in, in reality, discourage the conservation that's already happening there. So 100% agree, it is the frontier of conservation. We need to recognize and celebrate those private lands. And part of that means allowing those landowners to manage as they know how mm-hmm. to. Where can people connect with PERC, follow you both individually? Any reports coming up that people should be aware of? Anything, anything interesting, papers, things that sort well, of thing? Well, we, we are getting ready uh, probably in the next few weeks here to release a, port, a report on a, on a tool uh, that relates back to hunting and fishing and, and private land incentives and how oh. we can encourage private land incentives. And that has to do with uh, landowner tags for hunting. So one of the incentives, a positive incentive that you can give to a landowner to help manage the cost of wildlife associated on land, because you've got public wildlife that's managed by the state agencies for the most part, but you've got private habitat that's managed. And, and so oftentimes that, uh, that private habitat to the landowner, when it's providing for wildlife, comes at a cost. And not of the landowner's choosing, necessarily. Uh, it could be fences being knocked down, could be lost forage for their cattle by, say, elk or mule deer uh, grazing these lands, could be disease transmission that could relate. So how is, it that we can, um, how is it that we can make it valuable, much as they do in Africa, right, to have uh, conservation and habitat as something that's economically prop- profitable? And you don't have to write a government check to do this. Like, regulation itself, or lack thereof, can be a currency that has economic value to it. One of those ways is a landowner tag where the state wildlife agencies have the ability to say, if you are doing certain things for the habitat or you're bearing a a larger cost of wildlife presence on your land, we can give you a transferable tag that you could go out and sell on the marketplace to a hunter to come and hunt that land. And if you have species that are doing very well on the land and you're taking care of it, that tag is going to be a lot more valuable, but that's that's a way where taxpayers not writing a check, you know, at the end of the day, government's not writing a check at the end of the day. It's a private solution, but by allocating, um, not that these don't have to be large amounts of tags, but by allocating, you know, a little bit of guaranteed mm-hmm. uh, revenue by able to manage the, the species in a sustainable way on the land, 
the, the landowner can get some of that revenue back that uh, offsets the cost that wildlife are imposing. Mm -hmm. And on that, if you if you want to keep an eye on what we're doing and get reports like that or the Fix America's Forest piece that we did, um, connect with us. Our website's just perk, P-E-R-C dot org. Uh, we're on Twitter at perk, P-E-R-C tweets, Instagram at perk underscore conserves. So connect with us there. We'd love to hear any feedback on this and yeah, love to share our continued work with you guys. That's great. Thank you both Brian and Hannah for coming on to District of Conservation. Great chat. Appreciate you guys speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, comb through some episodes, and leave us reviews, we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds, all of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. Stay tuned for the next episode. Really appreciate you listening to District of Conservation.